scripture reading for this evening is Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 17. This will be our sermon text, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. This is God's holy word. Let's give it all our attention now. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, or before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And New Testament reading is 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Thanks be to the Lord for his good word to us. Let's pray. Speak now, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Give us ears to hear. Give us uh, faith to respond. Give us wills to obey and hearts to adore our Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen. The 4th century bishop of Hippo, Augustine, great early church father, 
didn't start out well. Spent his life running from God. Uh, he was born uh, with a uh, born into a family where his, his mother was a devout Christian, but he grew up with no interest in this himself. And he spent his life, um, the first part of his life anyway, running from the Lord and uh, um, seeking fulfillment and satisfaction and all kinds of different things um, in. Uh, in, in learning, in knowledge, in, uh, in philosophy, becoming a great rhetorician, um, seeking fame that way, uh, seeking sensual pleasure. But none of it satisfied him. It all left him feeling empty and like he was missing the most important thing. And finally, by God's grace, he's converted. And God, God saves him. And uh, Augustine, reflecting on this experience in the light of what he had come to understand from the Scriptures, wrote in his confession some of his most famous words, which are these, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. And that is exactly what Genesis 2 is about. You've made us for yourself, And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Genesis 2, brothers and sisters, teaches us that human life and existence is not accidental or or neutral, uh, but it's, it's purposed by God to be covenantal. That from the very beginning, God made man for himself, for a relationship with himself. To be human is to be religious by design. It's to be a worshiper by design. God made us for himself. Genesis 2, God says to us, I made you. And I made you for something higher than just self-satisfaction and the slavery that brings. I made you to satisfy you with myself. I made you to be my holy people, to bring you into my holy place and have communion with you there. Now, of course, since the fall into sin, we have buried this innate design under layers and layers of distortion and denial and unbelief and running after other things and rebellion against our covenant God. And there's a tug of war in our hearts, even as believers, um, there's a tug of war in our hearts over this, right? Who are you going to live for? What's your heart going to find its rest in? Whose authority are you going to submit to? Whose glory is going to be your purpose? What will your heart rest in? That's what Genesis 2 is about. Three headings, brothers and sisters. Three headings as we work through these verses here. Um, The first one's this. The Lord God forms a man. The Lord God forms a man. This is verses 4 to 7. So verse 4, we're starting at a, at a new section in the book of Genesis. Chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. is sort of like the prologue, the introduction to the book of Genesis. And then verse 4 starts a new section that's going to run through uh, the end of chapter 4. Um, you can tell it's a new section because you get the key words there at the beginning. Uh, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Another translation might be, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That's a formula that the author of the book of Genesis uses ten times in the book, throughout the book, to structure the whole thing. Uh, You'll see it over and over through the book, ten sections that that all start, these are the generations of, or this is the history of, so and so. So here we are, verse 4 is saying, 
we're starting a new section. And this section is about what? It says this is the history of the heavens and the earth. This is the story of the beginning of everything. But it's an interesting perspective on the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 1 was also about the beginning, but it was very zoomed out, right? Wide-angle lens. Uh, uh, Genesis Genesis, uh, chapter 2, we zoom, we zoom in. At the heart of this story... Right. Look, with you, if you're looking still at verse verse four, at the heart of this story of the heavens and the earth is the Lord God. There's an interesting structure to verse four. If you have it open, uh, you'll see this. It starts like this. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. And then at the end of the verse, it says the earth and the heavens. You'll notice it switches the, the order there. So it starts heavens and earth. It ends earth and heavens, right? A, B, B, A. It's got this mirroring structure, what we call a chiasm, uh, this, this tool that is used quite often in Hebrew to say, look at the thing in the middle. That's the main thing. And what's in the middle of verse 4? It's the Lord God. Now, this is the first time in Scripture that the name, the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant family name, is used. In chapter 1, it's all Elohim, the great creator God, the almighty creator of all things, the transcendent God of all the earth. But now, chapter 2, we're zooming in and we're getting this, this much more imminent, intimate look at creation. And we start with Yahweh, the God who has come down and bound himself to his people in a covenant to be their God. He is Yahweh, He is Elohim, He is the Lord of the covenant, and He is the God of all creation. And He's here in chapter 2 as the main actor. This is how we begin. Verse 4 begins, all eyes on the Lord God. Verses 5 to 6 then orient us, right? We're in this new section, so verses 5 and 6 are, are giving us a time stamp. They're telling us where we're at. Um, there's, there, there are some people who say there's a contradiction in these verses between what's going on here and in chapter 1. Of course, Genesis chapter 1, man's created on day 6, uh, but here in chapter, chapter 2, we're looking in detail at the creation of man. And some people say, well, wait a minute. In Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that plants aren't growing yet, and man is created. But in Genesis chapter 1, it says the vegetation's created on uh, on, on uh, is it day, day three, day four? But then man's not created till day day six. So what, is there some kind of uh, mistake going on in the order? Well, no, of course there isn't. This is God's holy and infallible word, which cannot err. And I think the um, the the the, the uh, particular things that Mo, uh, that Moses is describing for us here: the plant of the field, the herb of the field. These are things that need a gardener. Right? These these are cultivated plants. Because if you look at, uh, if you look on, it's uh, is it verse verse six? It says that uh, no no rain was yet watering the earth, and no man was yet uh, working the ground. These are cultivated plants, and so verses five and six are simply saying man hasn't been created yet. Man hasn't yet been created. Then we get verse seven, and we get the creation of man zoomed in for the close-up, right? And again, it's the Lord's name, Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God, who is the, who is the actor here. And he's pictured, 
very differently from chapter 1. Right? Chapter 1, he speaks and things come into being. Here in chapter 2, we get another perspective on this. The Lord God is pictured like a potter, right, scooping up the clay and throwing it on the spinning, uh, the spinning wheel and, and uh, shaping it and, and, and forming it. The Lord is presented as a master craftsman to us here. Right? And, and, and this, this tells us something of the intimacy of the work and the detail of the work and God's care and provision. Right? This is the only creation of God that's described like this. Right? He, 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 he speaks the galaxies into existence. But he forms Adam with his hands. Of course, God is invisible. He does not have a body like man. And yet, the language here is getting at something, isn't it? That the Lord has this special care for this particular creation, and he's forming him and shaping him from the dust of the ground. So God forms him, forms his body. And then the text tells us that he breathes into his nostrils, and he becomes a living being. And man comes alive. Adam comes to life. And he wakes up for the first time. And where is he? He's face to face with God. Of course, God, God doesn't have a, a, a face that you can see. God's invisible. But, but as man comes to life, he, 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 is, he is brought into existence in the very presence of God. Right? Not, not with God distant, removed, far away some unknowable creator, but with God right there. And everything about this is telling us man was made for God. Man was made, right, with his whole being bent Godward, a spiritual gravitational pull, pulling him to the Lord. That is how Adam was made. That's how our human nature was designed. This is what we were made for. Right? Our sin has distorted and twisted and broken and, and buried this underneath layers of rebellion and unbelief. But it's still there. We were made for Him. And as Augustine says, right, we're not going to find rest for our hearts until we rest in Him. So the Lord God forms Adam. Forms him for himself. Next thing we see in the text, the Lord God plants a garden. Right, so he's made man, and now he gives him a place. He's made this holy person to have communion with himself, and now he, he makes a place for this man to have communion with himself. He's, he's making himself a place to, to dwell with man. So this is our second heading. The Lord God plants a garden. This is verses 8 to 15. So God is here constructing a place that this man will live in and have communion with him, his covenant Lord. There's three things that we should notice here about the Garden of Eden um, from the text. The first thing is just how rich and abundant it is with life. It's overflowing with life. We see this all through the text. We start, it, it's, uh, we're told this garden is, is in the east, right? And that's symbolizing Life, that for, for the Hebrew mind, eastward means, means life. That's where the sun comes up. That's, that's the symbol of, uh, of, of life as opposed to the west, which symbolized death. Eden's in the east, a place of life. It's a lush garden. It's full of, of growth. It's full of fruit. Verse 8 says, God caused every tree that is pleasant to the sight 
and good for food. It's a beautiful place. It's a place full of every possible wholesome delight. One commentator says that it's pictured here as the life in the Garden of Eden is represented as a banqueting table. It's a place overflowing with, with the goodness of God and, and life uh, as, as the blessing of God. And then we're told in verse 10 that there's this river flowing through and out of Eden and it's breaking into four rivers that, as it were, are, are flowing out to water the whole earth as a symbol of this life and this blessing that's, that, is, that is here in Eden. That's the first thing. Eden is a place overflowing with, with life. The second thing to notice about this place, which isn't as um, explicitly obvious in the text, but it's definitely implied, is that Eden is, Eden is on a mountain. Um, Think, think about this, right? There's this river that's described here as flowing down from here and, and flowing out to the, the whole earth. These, these four rivers branching out. Which means Eden must be elevated. It's got to be up on a mountain for the river to be flowing out of it and down uh, to, to water these other places. So we're not in a valley. We're on a high mountain. And then um, we don't only see this implied here, though. We also see it in another text in Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 to 14. Uh, Ezekiel 28, 13 describes the Garden of Eden. And then in verse 14, it, ident- it identifies the Garden as being on the holy mountain of God. The holy mountain of God. Mountains are important in the Scriptures. God meets with His people over and over, right? On a mountain. Mount Sinai, He comes and gives them the law, makes the covenant with them. He meets with Israel on Mount Zion where the temple is built. This is the place where, where, where God meets with His people on a mountain, right? Pointing us to the fact that, that He dwells in the highest heavens, high above us, uh, and that... Uh, uh, we see this in the New Testament as well. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where His glory is revealed. Uh, and all of these pointing us to the highest heavens, that heavenly temple where God, where God dwells. And so God is, is giving Eden, and He's saying it's, it's on a mountain, like these other places, symbolizing fellowship with Himself and pointing to that heavenly high dwelling place of God. Third thing about Eden we should see here is that it's not just a garden on a mountain. It's also a temple. It is very much a temple. What we said so far already suggests this, right? That it's this meeting place between God and man. It's the place where God lives, dwells with man. Um, place of worship and, and covenant fellowship. Place of God's blessing through which He blesses the whole earth. Right? All that suggests this is a temple. But then it's brought out so much more clearly uh, through the imagery that's, that's here. Um, later Old Testament writers, uh, God himself actually, is going to pick up on the imagery of the garden here, and he's going to fill the tabernacle with it and fill the temple with it. The, uh, the golden lampstand in the tabernacle and later the temple is, is designed to look like a flowering tree with, with, with its fruit, right? And, and it's, uh, it's designed to, to bring to mind the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and the priest's robes in the, that he would wear as he ministered in the tabernacle or in the temple are, are ornately decorated with pomegranates, the fruit of this garden, showing, showing this imagery here. But then it all becomes more clear in verses 11 to 15 here in our text as these verses describe 
the river here that's flowing out of Eden and breaking into four other rivers. Um, we're, we're given some, some interesting description of the riches of the land around this. Well, why is this here? This, this detail about the gold and the precious stones. Well, gold and precious stones are going to fill the temple. God is going to have these in the temple, in the tabernacle. And in particular, the, the stone onyx, the onyx stone that's mentioned in verse 12, is the same kind of stone that is going to be set in the high priest's breastplate and have the twelve tribes of Israel engraved on it as he ministers before the Lord. And if all this isn't, isn't, uh, isn't enough, there's more, right? Verse 15, Adam is placed in this garden temple and he is placed here quite, uh, quite clearly as a, as a priest to minister before the Lord. We see the language here uh, of, of what he's supposed to do in the garden. In verse 15 says he's to tend it and keep it. The Hebrew is, is, is uh, you could translate it literally as to, to, to serve and to keep it, to, to work and to keep it. And those words that are translated here in this way are, are the same words that describe the activities of the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple later in Scripture. So the word that's translated here to tend is used in Numbers chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, to describe the duties of the priests in the tabernacle. The priests were serving in the tabernacle. Adam is to serve in the Eden temple. And then the other word that's translated here as to keep is the word that's used in Numbers 17, 9 to refer to keeping and guarding God's commandments, which was a task particular to the priests. And it's used uh, in Numbers 153 to describe how the priests are to guard God's tabernacle from all that's unholy and profane. They're to keep and guard this place, this holy place. And then in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, we get both these words together, to work and to keep describing the priest's work. It says this, They shall keep guard over Aaron and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Language richly evocative of Adam's task to work and to keep. He's a priest. In a temple, even before the fall, right? That's what Eden is. This is where God has come to dwell with his holy people, this holy place. Yes, Adam is probably doing some gardening in the garden, working and keeping that garden. But more than that, he, he's there as God's priest. He is there to serve God. He's there to worship God. He is there to represent God. He's there, he's there to guard the commandments of God. And he's there uh, to guard this holy place where God dwells with man from all unholy things. So we have God. Or he, forms, he forms a man, a holy person for himself. Then he plants a garden, this garden temple of Eden. And he puts man in the garden to be a priest for him there. And then he makes a covenant with him. Right, everything's in place. The, 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 uh, the man is, is there, the, this holy place is there, and now it's time for the covenant with Adam. This is our third heading. God makes a covenant. The Lord God makes a covenant. Verses 16 and 17. 
We've noticed already, we've brought out already, uh, how the focus of this chapter is on the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant name of God, um, on the closeness of God, the imminence of God as he meets with his people. But how can this be possible? And how is it that man can have a portion in God and have God himself to be his reward? God is so majestic and he is so holy and so high. If, if man did everything that God required of him to do, would man have earned anything from God? No, he'd just be doing his bare duty. If, if man is going to have God himself for his blessedness and reward, if he's going to have God give himself to him as his treasure forever, there's got to be a covenant. Right? God's got to give, God's got to give, uh, give a, a way to this glorious thing. We're made for him, but we can only have him through a covenant. And that's what we see in verses 16 to 17. God gives the covenant with Adam. Now, this covenant is, uh, is called the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Either, either term uh, is used to describe it. It's, um, it's foundational. It's, it's not called a covenant here in Genesis 2. We don't see the word covenant used. But it looks like one. It smells like one. It tastes like one. So it is one, right? That's, that's, we, don't, we don't say if the word is not there, it's not there. The word Trinity is not used, but the Trinity is there in Scripture. Um, here, the word covenant is not used, but all the markers of a covenant are. So we say this is a, this is a covenant. And then uh, Scripture confirms this. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 explicitly references the covenant God made with Adam. And then it's clear also from New Testament texts that God makes a covenant with Adam, that Adam's not a private individual. He's a public individual, a representative of all humanity. We see this in Romans 5, and we read earlier 1 Corinthians 15. So in other words, Adam, whatever he does, is going to affect all humanity. If he obeys, he will raise all humanity up into that fellowship, unbreakable fellowship with God. If he disobeys, it will bring all humanity down into separation from God. All right, let's, let's, let's look at this, this covenant here. First, we get the basic command. God says to Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of any other tree in the garden, but not that one there. What a simple command. It strikes you almost as arbitrary, doesn't it? Right? God, why, why, does he, why does he give this command? Right? He doesn't say, um, don't commit idolatry, or, 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 or um, Adam, don't, don't be proud, or, or don't, um, uh, uh, don't, don't be cruel and unkind, don't, don't, don't murder. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, don't eat of a tree. It's a simple command. What's, what's the point? Well, God is testing him. He's saying, will you submit entirely to me? Will you always acknowledge my authority, even when it seems like it's not a big deal? Right? Adam, will you recognize that as your maker and your Lord, I have absolute authority? Will you put aside what you think is best every time for what I think is right and best? Right? Is, Adam gonna, is Adam going to seek God's glory first above everything else and obey God and submit to God always? Or will he opt for his own wisdom? 
in His own way. This is the essence of obedience. It doesn't matter what the command is. This is always the essence of obedience. Am I going to submit to the Lord or go my own way? And so God gives this simple command to Adam to bring this this point out as clearly as possible. The entire issue is, are you going to submit to the Lord and obey Him? This tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think it's a magical tree with special properties in it. I think it's a tree just like any other, but God chooses this one out and gives it a special significance. It's a test. right? It's God is saying, who determines good and evil? Man or God? That's the, that's the test. That's the command God gives. And then, second, we get a warning. God attaches the consequence to the command. He says, In the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Disobedience will bring death, will bring covenant curse. There's no fine print here. God's words are emphatic and certain. You will surely die. You'll be separated from God. You'll taste spiritual, physical death, total separation from God's goodness. That is the negative side of the covenant, right? That's that's the prohibition and the consequence. What we can infer from that then is that God is holding out a promise to Adam at the same time. Not explicit in the text, but we can infer this, that uh, if, um, uh, if Adam passes this test, if he, if he doesn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then God is going to bring him to something higher and better than even what he's enjoying in, in Eden. Right? Eden is given as a replica of the heavenly dwelling place of God. But it is not itself that dwelling place of God. And God's design for Adam and all humanity is to come into his heavenly dwelling place and be there with him. And so God, God gives this promise implicitly to Adam. Right? There, there's, there's another tree. There's two trees in the garden. There's also the tree of life. And if you obey me, you'll get to eat of that tree. And you'll taste life. And you won't be able to fall into sin. Which will it be for Adam? Of course, Adam Adam rejects the Lord's promise and he takes to himself the punishment. He he would rather go his own way. We'll see this as we get into chapter 3. Uh, in a couple of weeks, something, uh, all right, that Adam's going to sin. He's going to lose this. He's going to lose for himself and for all his posterity. Everyone who comes after him, he's going to lose this promise of life. Of course, then, that's why we're hoping in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He gives us uh, something. Um, uh, the Lord gives us a, a better Adam, a second Adam. And Jesus comes and he submits himself to the Lord. He obeys the Lord faithfully in everything. He keeps this covenant of works that God gives to Adam. Jesus keeps it perfectly. And because he does, the way into the heavenly temple of God is opened again. And all, uh, all those who are in Christ, trusting in his perfect righteousness, get to go in 
We see this spoken of in Revelation 22 in language that's richly uh, echoing the language of uh, Genesis chapter 2 in Eden. Listen to these words from Revelation 22. Uh, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what Adam lost, and that's what Christ won. And that's why we're hoping in our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 22 goes on. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life. In Christ, we are going to get to taste the tree of life. We're going to enjoy that covenant life with God forever and ever. Loved ones, this is what God made us for. To enter into His presence, His holy place, to be His holy people in His holy place, face to face with Him, enjoying Him forever. Nothing else will satisfy God made us for himself, and our hearts are going to be restless till they find their rest in him. C.S. Lewis said that God has made us homesick for heaven. Right? That's what we are, we are, we are made for. And, and uh, nothing, nothing here is going to fill us or satisfy us. Adam and Eve lost sight of that. They got satisfied with Eden. Instead of looking to the heavenly reward of eternal life. They chose their own way and their own autonomy and the here and now over what God held out to them. And so they fell. So don't do that. Right? Don't, don't become uh, satisfied and distracted by, by the things of the here and now. And don't choose your own way. Choose the way that God holds out to you, the promise He gives you in Christ. Choose the Lord Himself, your covenant God and rest in Him. Seek your satisfaction and your joy in Him and hunger after His heavenly home. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that You made us for Yourself. What a high and wonderful purpose. We pray that You would free us from uh, how um, free us from hungering and thirsting after other things in place of You. Help us to hunger and thirst after you alone and to long to go home, to be with our Lord Jesus Christ in your glorious presence forever. Uh, So strengthen us, O Lord. Uh, Give us faith in these promises. Give us confidence in our Lord Jesus and his righteousness. It's in his name we pray. Amen.